Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie G.G., and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon and find out how you can support my work. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I have a passion for companies that care and give back to their communities. So I'm starting a new podcast, Companies That Care, to highlight those leaders in the industry. If you know of someone who is leading a company that is changing the world in the areas of sustainability, philanthropy, community involvement, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, please send me their name. On to today's episode. Today, I interview Brigitte Ayoub, who is a first-generation American daughter of two Palestinian immigrants. She grew up experiencing the challenges of finding her place as an American with Arab roots. Right after leaving her corporate job to start her own business in April 2018, her father died, and then her mom was diagnosed with leukemia the following year. Brigitte believes that we have two choices every day to sit and lament or face the adversity with courage and choose to lean into it. She has chosen the latter option. I posted photos and further details about Brigitte on my website, including links to her website. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome Brigitte. Hello, Brigitte. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Hi, Marie. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell us about your childhood? Absolutely. So I grew up and I'm still here in the current Philadelphia, Ardmore area, so the suburbs of Philadelphia. And growing up in this area, I'll tell you, has (laughs) been unique for me because I am first generation Arab American. And, you know, growing up in this area that is predominantly in an affluent white area has been very interesting because at times I felt like I was that child that stood out. (laughs) My parents, you know, immigrated to this country from Palestine and That was just a unique experience for me trying to find my place between a culture that my parents were trying to preserve and also my space and place in the American culture, if that makes sense. Yes, definitely. You have other siblings as well? I do. I'm the youngest of three and (sighs) we are all still in the area together. So I'm very blessed that both my siblings are in the area. Oh, that's nice. So you felt like an outsider in school? Growing up, I definitely felt displaced because first of all, I'm I'm 5'8", and I wasn't 5'8 when I was a little kid, but I was always the taller, bigger girl in school. So I always was like, you know, the one of the tallest ones and I had olive skin and I was like the hairy Arab girl, right? <laughs> I didn't look Arab according to people. So it was just one of those spaces where I felt like no one wanted to claim me, right? Because if I went overseas, they were like, no, you're American. And then the Mm. Americans here were like, no, you're Arab. I think I experienced the normal teasing, but I just didn't feel at home being in the Mediterranean culture and being Arab. You know, my parents took a more conservative, strict standard. So 
I didn't necessarily do what a lot of my friends were doing at that age. Right. And I, I know obviously now my parents were doing what they thought was best for me, but that was hard growing up as any kid. When you see your friends going off and doing something, you want to be able to do that thing. And when I didn't have that, I turned to food actually, I, you know, coming from the Mediterranean culture, Arab culture, hospitality is everything. And you show your love through food. That's the way, at least, you know, the culture kind of brought us up to be. And while I, I appreciate and honor that, you know, side of it, it also can be detrimental to your health. And I turned to food a lot of times growing up because that was my way of finding safety and finding comfort when I was anxious or I couldn't go and be with my friends. And how did you stop doing that? That took decades, Marie. <laughs> that was something that took a lot of effort and turning inward. And I'm, I'm very grateful to say that I've come through with that. But I grew up in a space, my father always had health issues. And that was actually a motivator for me because I went to college, I, I had a marketing background, a degree in marketing, and I went for my master's in organization development leadership. And I still always had this thing for wellness and just health. So my dad always had health issues. So it was a big motivator for me. And my mom was always a healthy eater. So I actually went for a certification in integrative nutrition. And I started to really understand why I was thinking a certain way and diet culture. So it wasn't until pretty much late into my 20s that I started to, to really pull the yarn apart and try to understand and untangle what was going on. I'm happy to say that, you know, what really happened was I wanted to be seen and heard. And I think like a lot of ambitious go-getter women, we we turn and we're the perfectionists, we're the ambitious ones, we're putting ourselves and our families, we're putting our families ahead of us and we're doing all these things. And I was that cookie cutter kid who just wanted to make mom and dad proud, right? Immigrant mentality, put your head down and do the work. And I had to, to come to terms with, I can, I can be seen and heard and visible and I don't need to turn to food to do that. So for me, it was acknowledging that I have to work through some worthiness pieces to it and recognizing that I'm whole as it is. And if I want to be seen and heard, I can do it in a healthy way that isn't food related. You know, I've heard from so many immigrants. I've interviewed a lot of immigrants or second generation immigrants. And so many of them felt like they never really fit into any category. Absolutely. And to make things a little bit more unique for me, my father came to this country in 1962 and he was barely 18, living the American dream, working three jobs. And he actually was an aerospace engineer and a rocket scientist. And he worked for the US Navy and he worked for NASA. So he had this really intense role and was able to travel the world and was on these missions. And, you know, there were times when my, my family and I just knew he was in England, right? Like we knew he was somewhere. Oh, wow. But I also had this dynamic experience where I was, I was experiencing a family dynamic. And I didn't always think people could really Late to me because my dad helped redefine the ejection seat for the U.S. Navy. He's helped save countless lives. Like there's patents on him. <laughs> and to grow up in this space, I, I always was told you're ahead of your time, Brigitte. I would talk to my friends, but I would find myself at basketball practice going up to my friend's parents and having conversations. And my friends would tease me being like, why are you talking to my mom? But I just, 
I felt more comfortable sometimes around adults because I think I grew up in a space where it was a lot of adult conversation. I just grew up in a, a really unique space of like, this is my dad and he is this big figure and he works for the government and he's doing all these amazing things. And I get to experience aircrafts in a different way. I, I get pictures from my dad when he's talking to people who are in, in space and doing all these really neat things for our country. <laughs> yeah, that must have been amazing. It was. I'm very grateful. So what kind of messages did you receive growing up? about being Arab and particularly being Palestinian? That's a really good question. So I don't think my specific experience is as probably not of someone else's. I'm Christian. So I know that that is a distinguishing factor just because, you know, people have been unfortunately profiled in that sense if they are of Islamic faith. However, people just, I think when you don't know something, we can be ignorant, not even by choice. It's just, we don't know anything better than what we know. Growing up in an area that was predominantly, again, white privilege, very wealthy area, Catholic. I was in Catholic school my whole life. It was just more of like, why do you do that? Why, 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 why? And as a kid, you're questioning yourself. You're questioning, well, why do we do this? And that's okay. I think there's nothing wrong with curiosity, but it always felt more from like a defensive state of like, why do, do we do this? And why do I have to be different? And so when people would say, well, why does your family celebrate multiple Easter's? Because we have family who are Orthodox Christian and then Catholic. So we celebrate both Easter's, right? Or, you know, why can't you come out to the dances? Because in our culture, my parents chose to, to live a more strict lifestyle with us and I wouldn't go to all of like our school dances or whatever the case was. So it was a lot of, I don't understand this. That's weird. Or I don't understand this. I just don't, why can't you just do what I'm doing? Well, and I'm wondering too, because I feel like for me, growing up as a white kid, you know, in the US, we hear these stereotypical statements about Palestine and Palestinians, right? And yeah. and I think a lot of people assume that all Palestinians are Muslim, which is not true, obviously. But I actually go to a, a kind of a funky, <laughs> I call it funky, Catholic Lutheran church. Okay. So Very we are, cool. I know, which is really unusual, but we've done a lot of work. We have actually have a Holy Land team. We've done a lot of work around educating people about Palestine. Yeah. And so I've learned so much since, you know, I grew up and I was just fed, you know, the media line. And, you know, right. unfortunately, then, of course, the last four years it's made it <laughs> made even worse, right? Yes. That <laughs> Palestinians are all terrorists and things like that. So, yeah, yeah so that's kind of why I was asking you. And, and also, I've done a lot of reading on the subject. And in my book group, I have a friend who's British. And she okay. said, growing up in, in England, they had a completely different understanding of Palestine and Israel. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's super interesting because like to your point, so my parents both grew up in a British school because that's just the school system overseas in Palestine. And my mom grew up in like a British German school. So she was speaking all types of languages, <laughs> but the people often are curious as to, you know, what's happened with Palestine and Obviously, like you could go back as far as like World War Two and how every, you know, everything happened with the UN and, and you want to make it relatable. But I think what was hard growing up among all that stuff, among people thinking you're of Islamic faith or you're a terrorist, because sometimes people would say something that was inappropriate around terrorism or even something like Brigitte, go throw a rock because, you know, Palestinians didn't have weapons. You know, this, like the citizens would just take be taking rocks and throwing them at the soldiers or, or you know, 
near the wall. And while that might be funny, like to them, obviously that's not funny to me, but I had parents who fled for safety. Like my, my father literally carried his brother, little brother on his back. My, my father was technically one of seven. Unfortunately, growing up, two of the children passed away, but he was the oldest of then five. And then he came to this country with my grandfather and they were sending money overseas to my grandmother who was raising the rest of the kids. My dad carried his brother for miles to safety. My mom, through the American University of Beirut, Lebanon, where she went to school, but then she taught in a refugee camp. So I think why I, you know, I mentioned earlier, I felt beyond my years because as a 10 year old, as a 15 year old, when your, your friends are focused on boys and dating, my view on the world is, is in a different space because I literally have parents who fled their country to safety. Whereas here in America, we, we are privileged Mm -hmm. and we are lucky and honored to not like that. We don't have to worry about that on a daily basis, you know? So I think that was another thing. It's like, once you've been through something, you you do take an empathetic ear, but you also are like, oh, sister, <laughs> this, is, this is a little different. Like, this is a little different that you're worried about what car you want. And I think, you know, my parents, they were really, really big in providing us like the best education that they thought was possible. So we were always in those private schools and education was everything. Like we weren't allowed to have jobs growing up, like as kids, because it was like, you go to school, you become the doctor, you go to school, you become the engineer, whatever. So you could be like, mom, I've got a science project. And I need to, you know, go to state, like wherever, go and get like the supplies. She would be like $200. Let's go. Like, you know, like they would drop everything to make sure that you were getting exactly what you needed to educate yourselves because there is so much out there. That's not true. And there's so much ignorance around it that, you know, Palestinians are very passionate about educating properly and saying you might have thought you were listening to something, but it was really propaganda. So let's just, let's have a conversation about it. We just want you, we want to feel heard and we want you to understand that we get what it feels like to be an oppressed people. Yes. Do you still have Palestinian family members back in Palestine? Yes. So my dad's one brother still has a hotel over in Ramallah. And then my mom has some family in, in the Gaza Strip. The majority of the family has immigrated to America or elsewhere in the world, but we do have some presence there. <laughs> and have you gone back to visit? I've never been never which is, it's on the bucket list. And my <laughs> husband, my husband is Polish. Russian is like, that's on the list. Right. <laughs> so we, right. we definitely want to go back. And it's one of those tricky situations where everything could be fine and dandy and, you know, something comes up. But the interesting piece to that is, you know, we've had conversations. I'll be very honest with you, Marie. You know, there is a part of me that fears going through the checkpoints, go fears yeah. going through security, because even though I'm American, I still carry my maiden name. Like I still just carry my name. I, I never took on my husband's last name. And I just don't know how I feel about that because my husband is American, but he could pass through and no problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you hear these stories. We have family and friends who who've been detained for eight 12 hours just because of their name nothing to it just their name so I would be lying to you if I didn't say that as an Arab woman I didn't fear moving through those checkpoints and and just that whole process yeah that's totally understandable well I know a number of people who've gone to visit the Holy Land and one of my friends has 
actually been disallowed from re-entering because of all of his work that he's done for Palestinians. Wow. So he's basically been blacklisted by Israel. So, and it just from what I what I understand, the situation for Palestinians has just gotten so much worse over the last several years. Here's hoping that we're turning a new era with that. <laughs> yes, I hope so. There's hope. Today I feel hopeful. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of my questions as well is, you know, after the white supremacist stormed the Capitol a couple of weeks ago and all of the anti-immigration xenophobic messages that we've been hearing for the last four or five years, how are you feeling about the state of the country right now around xenophobia and about, you know, immigration? You know, that's a really good question. And it's so loaded, but I'm a really positive person, not because I'm, you know, sunshine and candy drops and <laughs> and bubblegum and I haven't had and endured anything. You know, I've I've endured a lot significantly in the past three years actually. But I'm strangely calm right now. I'm calm because I do believe the healing is going to begin starting today. (laughs) And maybe call me naive. I don't, you know, I, again, like to take an abundant growth mindset. I think what we learned over the past four years was, and I learned specifically, especially around, I know you asked me specifically, like, you know, white supremacists, but even just around Black Lives Matter, I was turning an eye to that thinking, oh, we've progressed. And if there's anything that these last four years in time has shown is that we haven't and that there it's still there. So I think what ended up happening was it became extremely amplified. So now that that has come to the surface and that there was space for that to, to happen, we need to come together and heal. So I, I actually, you know, if I'm going to try and look at the bright side and, and look at the positive spin on the last four years, it provided us the compass to go, okay, we really do not have a grapple on this. We really, as a country, need to find some neutrality towards these situations and move forward. And of course, are our leaders perfect? By any means, no. But I am very hopeful that we are moving in the right direction, considering our now sworn in president, President Biden, has brought on like the most diverse yes. <laughs> group of individuals, which is just obviously the, the state of the country needs that right now. So I'm confident and I'm calm. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I was just reading an article today about all of the, the new staff and the shambles that has been left behind mm-hmm. because the previous administration has not been helpful at all in that transition. And I can't imagine right. going into that. I mean, they have probably have no idea idea what kind of skeletons are going to find in the closet. Probably not. Probably like, not. Oh my gosh. But my husband was saying his comment was Biden has really chosen people who are very, very experienced at what they do. So hopefully it will not be too difficult to get things going, going again. Yeah. But oh my gosh, I can't imagine. So let's talk about your grit and resilience story. Absolutely. Where do you want me to start? Well, yeah. So obviously you've got grit and resilience from being an immigrant, immigrant child and growing up Arab, but also you mentioned that what happened when you left your corporate job starting sure. from there and what did you do when you were in uh, working in your corporate job so I was in healthcare so I at first right out of college I had this marketing degree got scooped up by one of the major retailers in the country 
And I, I worked for them, great developmental program, but working retail management and that schedule was just like, no bueno. <laughs> you know, you're working the 60, 70 hours, but it was one of the best experiences of my life. And I'm grateful for that company. And I knew that one of those roles in HR was what propelled me into wanting to go back for my master's in organization development leadership. So in the process of leaving that job, I was in corporate America on the healthcare side, and I was specifically under behavioral health. And that's actually part of my motivation. You know, I mentioned earlier, my dad had a slew of health issues, but I also had been healing my emotional eating and body dysmorphia, as I had mentioned as well. And when I was learning that the workforce, that the numbers were just skyrocketing of individuals who were just experiencing, you know, bouts of depression, anxiety, and just stress from not taking care of themselves. It was just a wake up call for me. So I worked towards that certification in integrative nutrition and I was leaving my corporate job and I I left my corporate job end of April, 2018. And I was going full-time into the health coaching practice that I was creating. I'd already started to put it together and I had clients. And earlier that year in March, my father had undergone an incredibly large um, surgery. It was an open heart and quadruple bypass surgery. And, you know, my father had high blood pressure, diabetes, he had heart problems growing up, and he also had kidney failure and had already had a kidney transplant. So I'll other than being in school, I spent a lot of my time in the hospital setting. Like I just was that kid who grew up in the hospitals. <laughs> so I was very used to that. But literally the day after I quit my corporate job, my dad went went back into the hospital over some complications. And, you know, unfortunately, August of 2018, my father had passed away. And, and here I am. I had just left my corporate job, a steady, squishy corporate job that I loved too. I was going full-time in my business. I was taking clients at my dad's bedside, you know, not next, like next to him, but like I was, you know, figuratively like at hospice or at the hospital and then coming home and taking clients, trying to understand what that was like. And within three months, all this change had happened. And it was just like, what is going on? (laughs) You know? Uh And so it's just experiencing the first year of grief and, you know, trying to find your place with it was obviously a, ch- a challenge for me. And I'm, I'm grateful that we have a village of family and friends between the church, my expansive network. And I'm grateful. I, I actually had joined a women's connection organization to help build those, those connections. And, and as a byproduct, my business grew from that. So I found my space with it. I found my place and it was December, 2019. I was actually about to make a business pivot. I found my calling more so into business coaching. And I realized that a lot of the women that I was coaching, these emotional eating women were, again, the high ambitious women, go-getters who are putting their families first. And, you know, we know life is connected. We know your life's an ecosystem. So everything is impacting everything. And what, how you do one thing is how you do everything. So these women, by the time they're sitting down to eat something, like their issues were manifesting on their plate, meaning, you know, if they were stressed and unhappy with their career, they were just eating through the issue. So I found that I really cherished the development of, of helping women build their business. So I go to make this pivot. And on Christmas Eve of 2019, my mom is diagnosed with leukemia, a rare form of leukemia. And it was just the most devastating blow 16 months after my dad had passed. Like it was one of those moments where you were just like, what just happened? So my mother is a strong woman 
And the doctors felt so confident in her body that they literally transported her from the the hospital nearby down to Penn Hospital in the city. And that night they started her on chemo. They were that confident in her body and she stayed in the hospital for 31 days, knocked the cancer into remission. And they said, you know, you're in remission. It will come back. It it will come back. You're going to need a bone marrow transplant. So in the interim, you're going to need to come down for transfusion. So, you know, again, trying to find my place with it all and COVID-19 hit in March, 2020. Oh my gosh. So that was like four months after your mom was diagnosed, right? Yeah, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. So again, it's that next level of like, okay, universe. Okay. All right. What (laughs) is going on? Right. you like, I, I, cause I had these feelings of like, every time I'm making these big moves in my business, something happens with a parent and then let's just add a global pandemic on top of it (laughs) to kind of, you know, like put this in perspective. I will say though that, but when COVID hit, I found myself rising to the occasion quicker because this is going to sound a little strange. I hope it, it hits home. The feelings I was having prior to COVID is exactly the feelings that people were feeling in the beginning of COVID. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like I had almost two years runway (laughs) to kind of prep for that moment because there was confusion, overwhelm, uncertainty, right? So it was like I was experiencing all that with my father and his death and just leaving my corporate job and starting a business and then finding a little bit of wiggle room and space. And then my mom was diagnosed. So by the time COVID hit, I was kind of like, all right, everybody, I got this. Let's do this, right? grateful to say that was it very challenging to find rhythm within that I'm I'm grateful that my my brother and his wife and my husband and my sister we were able to find some kind of grounding and my mother actually received a bone marrow transplant in July of 2020 and of course during COVID that is just its own next level but you know like one of my favorite parts about this story is we don't know anything about her donor except that it's an international donor and he's 36 seven years old. And, you know, speaking of all the turmoil that this country has experienced and just everything that we felt in this world, that always gives me such a a feeling of hope because we're truly connected. There is somebody somewhere in the world who has given my mother life, like on July 15th, 2020, they said happy birthday to her because it was a new birth for her. Right. Uh. So that gives me hope. And I hope for anyone listening that we are truly connected. And that was just what I needed to kind of move forward, (laughs) moving forward in general, because there's so much out there that I think can bring us down. And we just need to hear those stories of hope. That's so interesting that you said that, because just on my walk today, I started listening to Barack Obama's book, which is really long. I was downloading it. It's like 33 parts. But I know it's very long, but he actually says something very similar. It's called A Promised Land. He says that he feels like the pen is a perfect illustration of how connected we are around the world because of our global supply chain and how one thing that happens in one country can affect the entire world. And yeah, it's really interesting that you made that comment as well. I heard great things about that book and it's on my list. I see that because as much as this experience has displaced people and I'm not 
discounting the lives that have been lost or the jobs that have been lost or just everything that has happened in between. If it proved anything to us, it proved that we weren't alone. Sure. Is it impacting everyone differently? Absolutely. I'm again, not discounting that, but what it did do was it provided us this opportunity to grow together and say, I see you, I I feel you. And I I'm with you on this. Do we have the same exact experiences? Absolutely not. But we are experiencing this and we all are experiencing similar emotions because we're human. And as a tribal species, like we just, we, we need connection. We need that ability to be together. So I completely agree with that. And so your mom, is she, she's doing okay now? She is. So she, her body, knock on wood, her body has been taking the cells. She has 100% donor cells. And the first year is the most crucial and critical. And she has been doing beautifully. You know, that is something that we're very grateful for because the actual bone marrow transplant procedure is very easy. It's the easiest transplant to administer and just conduct. It's the body rejecting or other complications complications that occur. It's, it doesn't have a very high statistic. It's like a 30% shot. <laughs> so we are counting our blessings every day in my meditations. The first thing I say is, is mom's health. So she is doing well and she's very proud of me because I told her I was going to be on your podcast. Aww, that's very sweet. What's her name? Her name is Gada. Gada. Hi, Gada. I'll have her listen in tomorrow. We have a date. We're going to go. There's a salon that is part of an organization's Wigs for Wishes, and they actually are offering to donate a wig for my mother. So it's actually a beautiful organization. Uh. There are several individuals and salons involved. So we're having a date tomorrow to make her feel beautiful and take that next step for her. Nice. So you mentioned in the form that you filled out that you were also caring for your mom alongside your sister who has needs special accommodations. Does she have a disability? Yes. My beautiful sister, she is the middle child, Jennifer. So my brother's Peter, my sister's Jennifer, and then it's myself. And my sister was born with, she wasn't breathing when she was born. So she actually, to this day, has a trait and she has an upper respiratory condition and she sleeps with a ventilator at night. And you know, she is just like one of them, like the most sweet and calm people you'll know, you know, that's something else that we, we have to worry about because of COVID. And absolutely. Like with my, with my mom was in the hospital, you know, my sister obviously can handle herself and take care of herself, but it's just, you're always going to be looking out for your siblings and and taking care of, of each other. So that has been an additional layer to the situation. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure Um, you're terrified. She's going to get COVID. Ah, when it comes to grocery shopping and all the things, we're just like, you stay in the house and we'll go take care of everything else. And I will say that, you know, as we talk about resilience and grit, like my sister, you know, she had moments where she had to be in the hospital growing up as a kid and she had to have special accommodations. So she really leaned inward and took to the arts and became really good at like drawing and painting and you know, just anything related to art because she spent some time in the hospital as a kid growing up, or if she, she wasn't going to be in school for some time or whatever the case was, she's really into writing and reading. So Hmm. it's so interesting how our life circumstances really do shape us to be a certain way. And then here comes little sister Brigitte, who is like, nobody mess with my sister, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. 
Yeah. That's nice. I know, you know, my brother-in-law had throat cancer a couple of years ago. He's still trying to recover from it, but he had a trach for quite a while. And that, I mean, that takes a lot of work to take care of a trach alone, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 She's, a, she's a pro though. She's, I'm sure. she's a pro and she, she celebrates the, the physical disability and she doesn't shy from it. And I think she'd be great to interview too, because, you know, growing up in the eighties and the nineties and, and just that was different for her as well, because it wasn't as well accepted growing up as a kid like that. Uh-huh. So I think she had to find her own flair and flavor and make herself feel heard in a community and society that doesn't always, well, we don't understand something, unfortunately. I, I like to think you and I are, are we worked on that Marie, right? We have <laughs> ways to go, but typically, right, when we don't understand something, it's very easy for us to resist or fear it. And I think she has found and, and continues to find her own voice in saying, this is who I am and I celebrate this. This doesn't make me any different than you. Well, it sounds like you're very close to your family. Geographically too, yes. <laughs> yeah. How have you all coped with the grief of losing your dad while caring for your mom? It seems like you've had one thing after another. Have you? Do you feel like you've been able to process your own grief? You know, that's a really great question. And I, I do feel like I have. I think as best as, as anyone, right? Because grief is one of those things. We all are impacted by grief and it's not just grief, loss of somebody. It could be grief of a relationship, you know, divorce, whatever that looks like. But with my father, I think the biggest thing that I've had to grapple with is just time. I lost my father at the age of 31. My husband and I had only been married for two years. And my father growing up, it was very much the conversation was how's school? How's your job? How's your 401k? Like it was very much the standard questions. And when he was traveling, obviously, like my mom was the one who saw us like during, you know, most of like our childhood and stuff like that. So I think the thing I've had to just grapple with the most is just releasing that I ha- I'm grateful for the time I had with him. He started to shift his relationship with me and vice versa when I got married, because I think in the culture, they they believe that like, okay, she's not mine anymore. <laughs> you ah. know, it's, like, it's very much old school in the sense of she's now in your presence and you're in unity now. And, and I can I can kind of shift my own relationship because it wasn't until those last two years, my dad always loved me, like loved, loved, loved me. I heard him vocalize it more in those last two years saying, I love you. I miss you. So I think I've had to grapple with, I wanted more time, but we all want more time with our loved ones. We always want to be able to to say that we've lived to the fullest with them. So I'm grateful for the moments I had with him. And I'm also grateful for the professional and personal development I do and had done up into that point. And then what I do now. So it's a non-negotiable for me as an entrepreneur. And I'm sure you can feel this, you feel the same way, but even before, for that, that we are always looking to elevate our growth. And for me, taking on meditation was huge. And I journal every day and I, I do all the things that make me feel good and put me in a position of thriving, right? And I channel that through exercise. I'm a, I'm a big fitness junkie. So I channel that through fitness and I channel that through mental and emotional exercises and assignments because I don't know what I would have been able to do with my dad and then with my mom. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing I've leaned into is believing that everything happens for me and not to me. And I've laid that as my foundation. And, you know, like, like being an entrepreneur, it's always about trusting yourself. And I trust myself. I trust that my higher power has me here for a certain reason and has everything laid out. I can only see the step, but someone or something bigger than me sees the staircase. And I, I trust that. Mm-hmm. And I, I utilize that power and I take my power, you know, when sometimes we, we, we forget we have our power, right? We just have to remind ourselves, but grief is something that one day you're good. And then you hear a song on the radio and you're just, you're in it and you have to, you have to just be in it for a moment and you can, you can sit in it, but you can't stay there. Like, that's my biggest thing is like, sit in it, feel it, move through it and then move out of it. I like that staircase analogy because I definitely feel that way about having my own business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've been yeah. doing it a little bit longer than I have. I started in around July, 2019. I'm a baby entrepreneur. So I feel like highs and lows, you don't know when you're going to get mm-hmm. new clients or it's very interesting. So tell us about your business. What do you do for your business? So I am a business and marketing coach and I help women build and create simple, effective marketing strategy, sales, and mindset to grow their online business, which right now during COVID has been, (laughs) you know, obviously a big, big need. So it's about helping women get really clear on what they offer and presenting their messaging. I do believe that we all have a need in our superpowers and we just need to find our own rhythm, but we all have the ability to do that. So interesting the way you describe yourself because so much of what you're talking about is what I do as well. Oh, it's <laughs> funny. Well, and I noticed that we have some similarities in our background because you did RFPs and proposals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I, did that, I did that as well. But I was I was not in healthcare. I was in the environmental services. Yeah, I did a lot mm-hmm. of proposal writing and teaching people how to do that. And so very interesting how our experiences overlap that way. It's been an incredible blessing for me. I also am very grateful. I am the managing director of an all women's connection organization. And I run the King of Prussia chapter, which is a suburb outside of Philadelphia. It's called Polka Dot Powerhouse. And we were based in the in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Our CEO and founder, Shannon Crotty, you know, started the organization. And it started as just like her trying to gather like a bunch of friends because she moved from Oklahoma. <laughs> and was like, I just want to have a couple of girlfriends. And it grew to be this like worldwide thing. We have, you know, 80 chapters and it's been an incredible experience that has been huge for the success and just sustainability of of everything that we were talking about earlier you know those were my people where when my dad passed away I, I gravitated towards them I think so important that as an entrepreneur like as we're talking about you know taking that first step and finding your power to find the people that are going to support you and be in front of you beside you and behind you for these life events, because life is what happens when we're busy making plans. <laughs> what would you say have been your biggest surprises and most gratifying things about being in business for yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. Nothing beats seeing a client who literally told me she has stumbled and struggled with a problem for two years in her business, gain that clarity within 20 minutes of working together. This client, I'm very, very proud of her. She was in like TV personality and has the millionaire agency and then has this business. And it was like when a client has that aha moment and it changes the game for them. I think it's just being able to build something and put it out in the world and 
for people to say like that this is changing my life. This is changing my business. Thank you. Because that's ultimately what I'm trying to do. You're trying to do is build something for the highest good. I'm doing this series on writers, uh, writers on resilience. And this woman used to be, her name's Julie Lithcott Hames. And she used to be a dean at Stanford. And so she's, and then she's been writing for the last eight years. And she said, what part of you is atrophying from being business for yourself? And I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't really think about that. That's really an interesting question. I don't feel like anything's atrophying, mostly because I'm really involved in other things beyond business. But I know what I miss. I miss the most is working as part of a team. Right. So I've had a few opportunities to do that. But for the most part, it's, you know, it's kind of solo. So that's my goal is to build a business where I can actually hire people so I can have like create my own team. So. Absolutely. And that's 100% possible for you. I think the possibilities are are endless. I think something that I've learned, and I don't know if you've felt this way too, is COVID has displaced a lot of individuals and a lot of people have entered into being an entrepreneur. And I keep it very real because I will be there and I will tell you everything I've done because I want you to succeed. I also think it's important to be real and direct and understand what <laughs> else goes into it. Like That's been the most interesting piece in the past year is seeing so many people enter into becoming their own boss and business owner and then going, oh my gosh, th- this is a lot more dynamic. <laughs> or this is a lot. I'm using, I'm true. I'm choosing my words because I don't want to discourage anybody, but right. you know, like when someone says to me, Brigitte, what's it like to be an entrepreneur? I'm like, unbelievable. Cause I think that word summarizes everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think also people will say, you know, what's it like? And I'm like, it's 70% mindset and then 30% like strategy and execution. I have clients that come to me who are like, I don't have the business background. I have the nutrition background or I'm a dietitian. Like, what do I need to do it? My eyes have been opened because it's great. I'm obviously pro entrepreneur, but I'm also pro corporate. Like we need people everywhere. We need pioneers everywhere. And starting your own business might not always be the, <laughs> the solution. Right. Um, I think sometimes people will push like start your own business, start your own business. I honor the tenacity, but we also need to share with each other what's going on. And it can't just be the highlight reel. You know, some people think, oh, she's going to Bali for, for two weeks and she's going to be on her laptop in, in the infinity pool. And it's like, that is just a highlight <laughs> reel of something that is not happening all the time. Or mm-hmm. if you see somebody doing that, they busted their butt behind the scenes for a long time to do that. You know, it's been very interesting to see people and like how they interpret being an entrepreneur. And I think COVID again has just, that influx has just skyrocketed. When I first started, a friend of mine recommended a book to me about how to start your own consulting business that's what I do. I'm, you know, consultant. And they had a list of characteristics that you really, you should have to become a consultant, at least if not an entrepreneur. And I think that you and I are lucky because we have a marketing background. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you know, I think that is probably the hardest thing for people that you're kind of having to constantly market yourself. Yeah. You hit it on the nail. So it's so true, Marie. While everybody has their own unique individuality and they are in their industry, you could be a, a financial advisor, you could be a health coach, you could be the writer. We all 
are marketing ourselves. We all are the marketers. And I think that is the one thing that once you gain that perspective, it changes the game, but then you have to learn how to apply it. It's nice that you and I both provide marketing services and help people through that. But what I think people need to realize is we're all marketers. (laughs) Right. Even as consultants, we can help other companies with their marketing, but we can't do it all. I mean, they have to, you know, we can coach them, but they have to still have to market themselves. The other thing I think I've been having some conversations with my 24 year old son because he works for Whole Foods and whether he should consider trying to move into like a leadership role. And I've been asking him like, well, is that what flows your boat? Do you want to be a leader? You know, and I've always been one of those people who's been drawn to leadership, but a lot of people aren't. And I think honestly, to be an entrepreneur, if you're not a leader, it would be a lot harder. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. don't you think so? Absolutely. That's the thing is like people gravitate to, to something based off of what they think they need to do versus right. what actually is what they want to do. Yes. And I'm not against taking something. To, if you know long-term, that's going to support you. But if you are going down the path because you're like, well, that's going to make me money. If you walk into anything entrepreneurial rated going, I'm going to do this for the money, you're setting yourself up. Yes, for, exactly. for that. You can't go into a business just wanting to make money. That's amazing. And money is amazing. And we know money is energy and all, all that, but you need to, to be able to go, am I energetically aligned with this? Whatever uh-huh. that is? And I'm not against, again, taking on something that you think long-term is going to be there. Case in point, if someone's looking to leave their corporate job, I'm not saying like leave right away. I would rather you save like six months worth of salary and then hire a coach to help you get through when you take that leap or take on part-time work, alleviate the pressure of those finances and slowly build yourself because there is a lot of shock that goes from that transition. And this isn't, again, to scare anybody, but it's that shock value to go from that corporate job or that leadership role, wherever you are to, to, to managing your own time. So how, how about we minimize that and take the calculated risk and, and do the things to help support yourself. So you're not putting pressure on yourself, but you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to being energetically aligned and you know, you know what, what, it, what's going to set your soul on fire. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just following that and recognizing that in the process, you might have to take smaller steps because again, you'll see somebody and think, oh, they're doing it. And then there's nothing wrong with observing what other people are doing, but we need to stay in our own lane because our lane is empty. Our lane is empty because we're focused on it, right? Mm-hmm. But when we're looking elsewhere and saying, well, they did it in two years. Well, we also don't know what was behind their story. And that's not, that's their story. Our story is what energetically aligns with me, what sets my soul on fire and what can I do and take small baby steps to get there instead of trying to to take a huge jump. Shifting gears a little bit. Have you read or watched anything recently that has inspired you? My mentor has been very inspirational to me. My mentor is Emma Burgish and she's out in New Zealand. So I have learned a lot around manifestation from her. And what I love about her that's just so inspiring is I think there's a lot out there and and there's a lot like in the woo-woo world and like, (laughs) I'm like woo-woo without the cuckoo, but she takes things and makes it very logical. And I've learned a lot around reframing my brain. And that's something I'm really passionate about and understanding is our brain is there to protect us and, and keep us safe from the primal days. So learning how fear can, can kind of stop us in our tracks and being able to say, you know, I'm safe now. Like what is coming up for me is that I just don't feel safe safe because this next step I'm going to take in my business, right? Feels scary. 
but that doesn't mean that I'm not safe. Like I'm literally safe. No one's coming after me, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. So like learning, learning and understanding how a shift in perception creates a shift in your energy, which opens up so much, right? Like we know everything is energy. So she has been an inspiration to me and I, I've been loving following her. And I got to admit, like having a mentor in New Zealand with her accent is just so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. And then my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? my mom, just with everything that she's experienced. And I I spoke a lot about my father and his story, but my mom, because everything that she overcame and when she came to this country and she raised us and she went back into the workforce, but obviously most recently, I think when my mom learned, you know, she had cancer, she was like, I'm going to beat it. You know, she was like, I'm going to knock this out of the park. And when she was on that oncology floor getting chemo, she's a big walker. I told you she's a health nut. And the nurses had told her, well, if you do a certain amount of laps, it equals a mile. And my mom was like, got it. She would walk up to 10 miles a day on that oncology floor. And everybody knew Gata by name. Even the patients did. And she's got two little grandbabies at home that are her life and and her, you know, motivator. So I think for me, it's seeing my mom who, you know, it's talking about a powerful woman who is beating odds and is choosing to see the goodness and the positivity and is saying, my time's not done here. I'm going to continue to do this and I'm going to rise and keep going. That is an inspiration for me. It's just been a delight to talk to you. I love your positive energy. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a part of your podcast and I treasure everything that you are doing and and shining light on difficult conversations and shining light on people and stories that need to be told and heard because there's so much power in in the grit and the resiliency and the tenacity. We just, we don't always know about it. As, As I said earlier, we don't know what we don't know. So thank you for creating a platform that allows us to be able to be a part of it. You're welcome. It's my honor. Well, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You as well. I really enjoyed my conversation with Brigitte. Her positive energy is contagious, and we have a lot in common coming out of the corporate world and starting our own businesses. You can find further details about Brigitte and photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Next week, I interview Shannon Whaley, who overcame sexual abuse and assault, a toxic childhood, and drug and alcohol abuse. In 2013, she sold everything and moved to the Cayman Islands and then to Italy in 2017. She is a business and visibility coach and teaches people how to turn their stories into sales. She works with folks who have gone through hell and back and have a story to tell the world. Do you know someone with a grit and resilient story who would be great to interview? Or maybe you might like to suggest a guest for my new podcast, Companies That Care. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.